You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. You're listening to The Good GP. I'm Sean Stevens, and today we're interviewing respiratory physician, professor of medicine, West Australian of the Year, and founder of the Fathering Project, Professor Bruce Robinson. Welcome, Bruce. Thanks, Sean. So, Bruce, you've done some amazing things in your life. You've been an internationally recognised researcher into asbestos-related diseases. You've been an award-winning teacher. You established the Breaking Bad News communication courses. And more recently, you've established the Fathering Project. I'd like to cover the Fathering Project in detail, but before we do, I'd like to hear a bit about your early career. Can you tell me where you studied medicine and how you came to be a respiratory physician? Sure. Um... I'm a local Perth boy, in fact I grew up in Bassendine in a factory suburb and just normal Aussie kid riding my bike and swimming in the river and stuff. I think I was the first person in my family ever to go to university. Um, but you know, it's, I guess to be honest uh, it's a proud heritage and I love the fact that I grew up down there and I'm actually still a patron of Swan District Football Club. <laughs> well done. Uh, and I love going down there seeing my old mates and uh, so I studied here. I actually studied uh, three years in England as well, did their exams, a few of them, and studied three years in the States where I did a doctorate. Uh, in answer to your question about respiratory medicine, yeah, I always knew I was from medical school I was going to be a physician of some sort. And really, Sean, to be honest, I could have done anything. I loved cardiology and haematology and everything, every other ology, I think. But when I went to England, I got a job, a locum job in respiratory, and I realised that it's an incredibly interesting outpatient job, especially immunologically because I'm a bit of an immunologist I love the complexity of those diseases so I just did respiratory medicine and it's been a good friend to me most of my life yeah excellent um, and after you specialized and you got your doctorate um, you took up an academic position at UWA in the early 90s where you probably don't recall but you taught me when I was a pimply medical student um, <laughs> You had already started studying the scourge of asbestos-related diseases, mostly coming out of the asbestos mining town in WA's north, Whittenham. Can you tell me a little bit about this research and how it shaped you and your subsequent career? Sure. I already knew before my doctorate that we had quite a few cases of asbestos disease because of my work as a registrar in respiratory, but to be honest, I didn't have much of an intention of applying my research skills to that problem I learned a lot about laboratory science and cell biology and immunology. and um, But what happened, I came back and I was actually studying immunological lung diseases, but we had this terrible tidal wave of mesothelioma. That was one problem. And the other problem was um, we didn't seem to be able to do anything about it, and we just sent them home to die. And to be honest, Sean, it reminded me of my, my days as a medical student in the Himalayas where when someone came in with rabies, we couldn't do anything, so we sent them home to die. And I thought, this is no good. And my friend and mentor, Bill Musk, said to me one day, slumped down a chair in my office and said, can't you use all that technology you've learnt to do something about this terrible disease? So we put our toe in the water, uh, tried to find some cell lines, had to make our own because there was no one in the world that had them. And gradually, it sort of, to be honest, took over my life. Um, and from the point of view of something like asbestos cancers and although there's you know whatever there's 15,000 around the world and you know only a small proportion of that's in Perth we do have a high incidence actually we have the highest incidence in the world 
And when you have a disease that is the highest incidence in the world, you start to think you've got a moral responsibility to, to study it as well as an opportunity. So you have an opportunity and moral responsibility. Anyway, it's been fantastic and we've made some big advances. Mm. Yeah, and I uh, myself refer a number of patients to your asbestos monitoring disease program. And, um, you know, I think you're right, it's a world-leading um, program that you've, that you've got going. So after your experiences um, treating people with asbestos-related disease, you establish a Breaking Bad News um, which, which helps doctors to break bad news, particularly in relation to cancer. Um, can you tell us a little bit about this program and, and what it was that prompted you? Yeah, no, thanks for that question. To be honest, when I started Breaking Bad News, which of course you have to do quite a bit as a lung specialist, um, I don't think I was all that good at it and I certainly didn't feel that comfortable and a number of times I found myself, particularly when the patient was the same age as me with kids my age, found myself weeping when I thought about it and talked to them about it. Um, and then I did a little bit of reading and with the help of some friends found out that doctors have a very bad track record of breaking bad news. Bad for the patients, bad for their relatives and ultimately bad for the doctors. So we started, actually we got some psychologists to run the course initially, did a lot of research and the students slaughtered us and they said they're great but they don't actually have to do it. We want to be taught by doctors who have to do it. So I ended up with a few friends coming off the bench and doing it and making it clear to the students. Actually, to be honest, one of the best parts of the course, I think, is me telling the students about all my mistakes over the years. Um, it's actually been quite a rewarding thing that I've done. And now I feel very comfortable talking to people who are dying. And I love the fact that students have learned how to do it, uh, not just from me, but the other people on the course and related courses. And it is nice to know that a whole generation of students will be doctors and at least feel more comfortable talking, breaking bad news, and also more comfortable with themselves in the process. They're not going to get burned out, but they're going to learn how to be empathic and kind without it costing them their, all of their emotional energy. In fact, in some ways, it can energise them. Mm, it's interesting you say that because... You know, I don't break bad news anywhere near as much as you, but, you know, most GPs would do it, you know, half a dozen times a year, sometimes more. And I find it a rewarding uh, thing to do if you know you can do it well. Um, but like you say, it can be very emotionally draining. Do you still find you shed a tear um, when you do it? Not so much now, a little bit, but um, I guess in the early days, I think the times when I really got emotional was when, you know, usually it was a man who was, as I said, his kids were my age, so the age of my kids, and, you know, I started to visualise the kids growing up without a dad. I still do it sometimes, not so much. Uh, I don't mind doing it. I mean, it's mm. kind of, it's an, it's, in some ways, it's the most empathic thing you can do. You can say to someone, oh, this is really hard, and mm. sorry to hear it, but a tear is a very empathic and uh, unstructured um unrehearsed thing to do so and I found that my students who have done this course they also um, find that if they do shed a tear uh, the patients do appreciate it that it's a it's a very empathic thing to do but it has also taught me Sean that uh, this you know this sort of being a kind doctor can pay out on you so I um, 
I have worked out how to get a balanced life and I mm. think I've got a pretty balanced life and lots of support and all those things that we encourage students to get. Mm. Yeah, I think that's very, very important. And I think as GPs, uh, we probably even have more invested because particularly if you've known the patient and you've treated the whole family, it's uh, it can be very draining. And I know, speaking to my registrars, they, you know, they tell me how, how difficult that they do find it. Yeah, I mean, I do actually feel for GPs. Um, I, mean, I have a bit of a rule. So usually I'm breaking bad news to one of my patients, of course, but I have a rule, and this is my rule. Mm-hmm. I always, because it's an intimate moment of contact when you break the bad news and they cry and they've got their husband, wife there, whatever, maybe their kids, it's a very intimate bonding moment. So I have a rule that says I will continue to look after that patient from that moment until they die. Mm-hmm. I won't just handball them off to the oncologist and the radiotherapist and the palliative care. And uh, they really appreciate that. And mostly mm-hmm. when they come to see me, I'm no longer really doing much because their CT scans have been done by oncology and their treatment and their blood tests have even usually been done. It's mostly about how you're going, have you told the kids, um, how are you thinking about the future and are you making plans? And I have this phrase, uh, which which I've got to say has got a 100% success rate. I'm sure I never made it up, um, just in my head, but I'm sure I learned it somewhere like most things, which is plan for the worst and hope for the best. So I encourage them to hope for the best, a good response to treatment. But then I look them in the eye and say that plan for the worst. So it could be as short as three months, could be as long as a year, 15 months. Plan for the three. Mm. Write letters to your kids. Do the trip with your wife, husband, whatever you've always wanted to do, Paris or Uluru or whatever it is. Get on and do it. Mm. but it's those letters to the kids that really bring a tear to their eye but I get them to confront it and I found that it's uh, why is it so successful it's because in asking them to plan for the worst they get it clear in their head they get on and do everything while they're well and not falling asleep with morphine etc but they have this wonderful sense of liberation because once they've planned for the worst written the letters done the trip to Paris every day from then on is a gift and they live mm. their life. Yeah. The trees are greener than they've ever noticed before. The sky's bluer. Every day is a gift. Yeah. And uh, it's been a great thing. So I, um, that's why I tell them. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent advice. And I'm sure our listeners will uh, find that very useful as well. More recently, Bruce, you've set up the Fathering Project, um, a organisation that's very close to my heart. Um, this is designed to help men to become better fathers and better father figures. Can you tell us a bit about this organisation? Sure. Um, it's actually it started uh, from actually being my job as a doctor. I'm talking to uh, just talk about breaking bad news, and so many men. Uh, when you know, like I said, I do the journey with them, and they talk about their regrets. And one of them is inevitably that if they had their life all over again, they'd have spent more time with their kids. Um, in fact, I told a story the other day about a guy who's still stuck in my mind. His name was Peter. He's now dead, but he was a tough welder mm. in his uh, 60s, early 60s. I can't remember exactly now, but he came in one day and he said to me... So I wrote a book about busy dads and you know how you can yeah. sort of seize the opportunity when your kids are young. Anyway, he came in and he said to me, Bruce, I want you to I'll tell you something, mate. I'm, I bought your book. He said, I can't read it. And I felt suddenly a bit bad because I thought I'd written it user-friendly, lots of pictures, dot points just for men, you know. He said, Bruce, don't worry, it's very easy to read. But he said, my problem is this, I read, um, I read a page 
And every page reminds me uh, why I wasn't a good dad, why I thought working to provide was all you needed. And it, tell, it explains to me why now my kids can't really be bothered spending time with me. He said, and I start to weep. And he said, my, the tears fill my eyes and I can't read anymore, so I have to close the book. Mm. He said, I wish I had this book when I was young. Anyway, that's how it started. But uh, then something else happened, which is I began to do research and I realised that being a good dad isn't just about dads. It's about kids, because if you have a good dad or a good father figure, if dad's not around, that you're about 50% less likely to, on average, I mean, varies, do drugs, get into crime, be a bully at school, lose interest in education, get depressed, suicidal, etc. Some more than 50, some less than 50, but it became, in my head, a, a health promotion activity. By helping dads across Australia be better dads, we're going to help the future of our kids. And let's face it, our kids are facing a very risky future with methamphetamine and all the other sort of party drugs and things. It's quite scary. Uh, depression, dads being busy, um, etc. So what we do is, and I've got to say, we didn't realise this is the way to do it at the beginning, but we've learnt. We go out to schools, for example, or workplaces, community groups, but mostly schools, and we talk to the dads about how to be a good dad, like why it's important, first of all, that they are important, and then secondly, what things they can do. Uh, what things they can do, which we know work from all you know, thousands of dads we've talked to. And then they go away and start doing them, and honestly, it's fantastic. You see them transformed. And so we form champion dads groups at every school, so they kind of get together and maintain the interest and the support and the peer encouragement and though we have videos which talk about how you as a dad can help them avoid drugs or with their education or what about dads and daughters or dads in a healthy lifestyle or what about peer pressure or travel or FIFA or whatever. Mm. They also have father-child campouts on the school playground and they do all sorts of other things. And uh, yeah, very uh, transforming for their lives, not just for the dads but for the kids and interestingly, for the families, you know, the wives love this. They yeah. love this program. And our vision is to be in every school in Australia with one of these champion dads groups uh, in the next five years and we can raise the money for it. We're already in uh, Sydney as well. We've got an office in Sydney and just yeah, started an, op that. Got yeah. an office in Melbourne now as well, just recently. Yep. We're working with the AFL and they've been really good about helping us uh, also to promote this in the community. Um, and I don't actually have to spend a lot of time on it now. We've got a whole organisation. Uh, it's a sort of they're trying to make it a slightly Bruce-free zone, <laughs> yeah. so that if I get hit by a bus, it doesn't fall over. But it's one of the most meaningful things I can do. That's the first thing. And secondly, I think it's going to do more for the health of our young people in the future than anything I've ever done. Yeah, yeah. Look, I'd agree with that. I mean, if I can chip in my two cents worth of the experience of the fathering project for our listeners. Um, I was one of the champion dads that started the group at our uh, local government primary school where my kids were. When, Which uh, school is that? Como Primary. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, you know, we come up with silly names, so we're called the Comovers. And, uh, <laughs> Great one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's been good. It's got people listening. <laughs> and it's been brilliant. Um, you know, we, we started slow, and I think the first camp out we got about 50 people and then 80, and then 120, and it's, and it's just growing. And the, the camp out's our signature event. But even things like, you know, we have a barbecue to welcome new dads. Um, we meet on Father's Day. We, we meet with um, the, the dads that are going into the kindergarten to, to do a special event with the kindy kids. 
Um, we have a pub night just purely for dads without without the kids. We you know we have AFL or waffle uh, days where we go to the footy or netball, and it's been brilliant. It's also really good for the dads to meet each other and just share impromptu ideas and um, you know just you know in that way when you're doing the drop off at school and you know you see that dad across the playground, you can go over and say good day instead of oh geez you know I wouldn't mind saying hello to him but I don't know his name and I don't know who he is. So it's really enriched our, uh, our school community. Sure, and it's fantastic. I went to a function, they asked me to go and talk to a group of 50 dads, I think it's about 50 or 60 dads, mm. uh, representing the champion dads groups. Yeah, I was there. I heard you talk. Oh, there you go. Yeah, and yeah. I looked around and I thought, well, I just did the maths on how many dads and therefore how many kids were, and I thought, there's yeah. probably 10,000 kids who are influenced by these dads. Yeah. 10,000 kids. I mean, what a spectacular effect of just having this 50 bunch of blokes making yeah. things happen. Yeah. You know? um, and that's, I think, uh, one of the beauties of this program. Dads are so powerfully effective, mostly they don't know how effective they can be, and yep. even if they do, they just feel guilty. Yep. So to actually have yep. some tips on what you can do, I mean, you talked about the Champion Dads groups. The thing, one of the things, and I'm, I'm sure you know this, that we, that we push, um, when they say, give us one tip, it's always uh, one-on-one times with the kids. Mm. And we um, we push the champion. Uh, we push the dad dates, one-on-one dates with the kids. And uh, someone, I don't can't remember now where I was, but someone said to me, just bailed me up the other day, and said, "Oh, um, my husband went to something. Uh, he talked about the one-on-one dad dates. He didn't know sort of how to really get connected to his kids." He said, "It's been absolutely miraculous. It's, mm. His relationship with the kids is so different. It's like a miracle." Yeah. Such a simple tip, and that's what we do all the time. And, of course, we talk about one-on-one trips with the kids, and so we're working with the AFL coaches now at their request because they have trouble with work-life balance, and they've started taking their kids one-on-one on you know, interstate trips, etc. It's, it's brilliant. It's yeah. so simple, yeah. and yet so powerfully effective. Do you know why it's effective? No. Well, I, I never quite knew why these one-on-one times were effective. First of all, I thought, well, you get a chance to talk to your kids, you know, man to man or man, yeah. father to daughter. Whilst that's true, it actually doesn't happen that much. And then I thought, oh, well, it's bonding. Never knew what that meant, but the women used to say, oh, it's a great time to bond. That's true as well. But this is what I reckon is the number one thing. And speaking as a doctor, it's like a pill, yep. like a magic pill. It's that the kids feel worthwhile. My dad's busy. Yeah. He could do anything he likes, but he chooses to spend time with me. And not with my brothers and sisters, and mum's not here, and his brother's not here, and his mates aren't here. It's just dad and it's just me. So I must be worth spending time with, which means I must be a worthwhile person. That is the magic of it. They feel special, yeah. worthwhile. And if I had to pick one thing that would protect kids from sniffing methamphetamine or anything else when it's handed around at a party would be something to be like feeling worthwhile. You know what? I don't need that to feel worthwhile. I feel okay now, so I'm going to pass. Mm. Not the only thing, but it's that's the magic of one-on-one times. Yeah. Yeah, I I was doing that with my kids before I heard it from the Fathering Project, but I've been doing it a lot more, and they love it. They really, you know, they, they ask me. They're like, Dad, when are we having the one-on-one time? Can we do this? And I let them choose, so it's something that they want to do. Mm. And, um, yeah, it's brilliant. It's you brilliant know what? Time. carries on all your life. Because when they become adults, you, you, you know, it's brilliant. Because then your kids, they're just used to having time with you. Mm. I go to the footy with my uh, second son. He's my other one's in England. Uh, we go to the footy. 
Yep. Just hey, mate, do you want to go to the footy this waffle footy? Will you want to go to the footy this weekend? Yeah, dad, yeah, that'd be great. And my yeah. daughter once she rang me up. What? Uh, she said, uh, hey, dad. Like she's teen when she was a teenager, right? Yep. An older teenager. She said, hey, dad. Uh, that father-daughter date you've been trying to have, I know I've been too busy, but I thought, you know, maybe we could have one. And so I opened my diary and I said, uh, sure, uh, darling, when do you want to have it? She said, well, Dad, what about, uh, what about now? <laughs> and inevitably it was about a boy, you know, about a guy, and, you know, yep. we went out and, you know, whatever. Yep. And, but I thought, if we hadn't done it from when she was young, maybe, like, she's not going to suddenly talk to her dad yeah. about a guy... If I'd never talked to her before, but we just fell into the you know pattern and it was beautiful. She still yeah. does, you know. We still have time together. And I've got a new thing too. They're all married. Oh right. They're all married. So I've started a new thing called Chill Dates, C H I L L, which stands for Children in Law Dates. Because right. I realised that uh, I took my kids out on one-on-one dates, but now I see my kids and their partners together. Yep. So now I take my daughters-in-law out one-on-one, just them, without yep. my sons. And I take my son-in-law out without my daughter. Yep. It's fantastic. That's excellent. Uh, that's great. Yeah, as you say, you have got a very balanced lifestyle. That's awesome. I think so, yeah. yeah. I'm lucky to have a, a wife who is the engine room of life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'd sink without a trace without her. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we all need that. Um. So if any of our listeners were interested in starting a Champions Dads group, how would they go about doing it? The uh, most important thing, I think, is to get onto the Fathering Project website. Uh, you just Google the Fathering Project, you'll, you'll come up straight away and make contact. Uh, we do have some videos uh, that talk about how to set up a group and some resources and what have you. But to be honest, I'm not sure the exact process or what the name of the video is. Like I said, I'm one step mm. removed from that, but we have a, an office. It's a UWA-based project, so it's full of research. In, you know, it's based on research best practice, and the office is at UWA campus in Claremont. Um, but you know, uh, that'll be the way to set it up. Yeah. And then, um, usually, like you know, you obviously have a lot of information yourself. What works, yeah. what doesn't work, and there's you know, accumulating amount of corporate knowledge and wisdom mm. of how to make this work. Sometimes people say to me, oh, yeah, that's all right for the Western suburbs, but what about lower socioeconomic areas? Rubbish. We find that dads love their kids everywhere. They mm. just need a bit of advice on... It's a little bit different on what they're going to do. You know, they may be less interested in, you know, the videos. And, I don't know, but, I mean, they just seem to be... You can, mm. you can get dads... Dads love their kids, and once they realise how important they are, they will get together with other dads. The other thing, and you've alluded to this, is that... Australian men are actually a little bit lonely. They don't quite know how to connect. Mm. They usually their friends like you know they don't see much see their friends that often. They have a lot of acquaintances, but no one who really is a friend. They rely on their partner for a lot of social engagement and their kids. But getting together with other dads at the school gives them a, a connectivity, a tribe, a mm. bit like a footy club. You know, it's a yeah. tribe. It's a grouping of dads who won't necessarily be their best mates but they're people you can share the journey of life with especially at a time when you need to which Mm. is when you are a dad and especially carrying on through the primary school age right through to high school age yeah i guess you're all going through the same life stage by definition because your kids are the same age and all going through the same sort of trials and tribulations exactly yeah yeah um so to summarise there, people in Western Australia or now in Victoria or Sydney are interested uh, interested in getting a fathering project group going, 
look on the website, contact through that, and yeah. there are resources and help and staff yeah. available. Exactly, to and do it all that. happened from there. Yeah. yeah, brilliant. The other thing I'd like to put a plug in for is uh, your Dunny book, as it's called, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which which I think is excellent. It's a little uh, con- collection, uh, sort of postcard size book um, with a collection of dot points, which is ideal for blokes just on um, fathering tips while you're sitting in the toilet. Um, and there's also the um, newsletter that comes out. Or, um, there's, I think it's three dot points that comes out every Monday um, on an email list, which I think is gold too. Just sort of jogs your memory and think, you know, what, what should I do and how can I engage with the, with the kids? So, uh, yeah, it's an excellent organisation. Well, thank you very much for making the time to talk with us today, Bruce. And um, I wish you all the best for the future with the Fathering Project and all of your other endeavours. And um, I look forward to catching up with you at future events. Thanks, Sean. Appreciate that. And might I say, good on you for, you know, at your stage of your career, thinking about your kids like you are. Uh, so you're not going to be sitting in my office uh, regretting life. I'm mean, always thinking, you know, you want to live as... Everyone's got regrets, you know, you said the wrong thing at the wrong time, but they're small regrets. You don't want to live in a big regrets life like my welder patient, Peter. Yeah. You want to have a small regrets life, so make decisions up front so that... And I've had a patient like this who was 38, dying of cancer, right? And he sat yeah. there and we had this conversation. He said, you know, Bruce, I've got no regrets. I was very ambitious when I was young, but I decided, you know what, mate, you can be ambitious or you can just... Drop your ambition level and spend time with the kids. He said, I don't reckon I've missed a moment with my kids, and they'll tell you that too. He said, I'm dying a happy man. Of course, I'd rather be with them now, but they're young adults, and maybe he was 48, actually. Anyway, he said, they're young adults, they're great. I've had a great... I have no regrets. Very impressive. Yeah, yeah, to say that at that age is impressive. You're obviously living a no-regrets life. I'm sure you've got small regrets, but no big regrets, and your kids are lucky to have you, Sean. (laughs) Thanks, Bruce. (laughs) 